there. I'm your friend Bev, host of Stop Psychoanalyzing Me, a podcast about mental health. I interview experts and ask questions about mental disorders that all of us might be curious about. Come join me. Today's episode is Dr. Zindel Siegel, who is a distinguished professor of psychology and mood disorders at the University of Toronto Scarborough. He is a co-developer of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and a co-founder of MindfulNoggin.com, offering online mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to the public. As an author of over 10 books and 180 scientific publications, including The Mindful Way Through Depression, A Patient Guide for Achieving Mood Balance in Everyday Life, Dr. Siegel continues to advocate for the relevance of mindfulness-based clinical care in psychiatry and mental health. Thank you so much for once again being on the podcast. So today we're actually going to be talking about mindfulness and I asked a lot of folks about mindfulness on the Instagram page and folks had a lot of questions about mindfulness and I thought you would be an excellent person to talk to about this. So maybe before we get started, I'd just love to hear some of your background on mindfulness. My background on mindfulness was coming to it from a science-based pathway rather than a devout meditation pathway. I think in the mindfulness world, there are a lot of people who themselves have had very evocative personal experiences with mindfulness. It it helped them through a a life crisis or it, it really helped them see things in important ways personally. And then they feel comfortable advocating for mindfulness more generally. But my path to it was really coming from trying to understand how people who have been depressed can prevent relapse and learn resilience skills, mental health, broad resilience skills that can help them develop a decentered or metacognitive relationship to thoughts and feelings. Okay. People can do that for themselves. And we felt that mindfulness meditation was a very direct route of helping people do that. And and because we came to that conclusion, myself and John Teasdale and Mark Williams, we had to dive in and and find out what it was. Wow. So maybe before we chat a little bit about using mindfulness to help folks with depression, I'd love to know what exactly is mindfulness? A big question. Mindfulness is a type of awareness. And the awareness comes when you pay attention in a particular way. Mm. And so awareness of something allows us to uh, perceive and explore it in a particular way. So in this way of paying attention, we attend to the present moment. That's where we want to bring our attention. We want to do it purposely so that we're the ones that are the, we're the ones that are guiding the placement of our attention in any moment. And whatever we attend to, we become aware of, we're not judging it as Mm. good or bad, right or wrong, better or worse. So when you do those three things with your attention, present moment, on purpose, no judgment, then you have an awareness of something, which is called mindfulness. And it could be 
an awareness of eating, could be awareness of walking, could be awareness of the breath, could be awareness of anger. And then you have this uh, way of knowing it through being mindful as it's happening. So I love that definition. And I think breaking it down into three components is really helpful for folks who aren't familiar with mindfulness. But I do get a lot of pushback from folks who who say, well, what's the point of this? Why be mindful? It's kind of boring just to sort of note what's happening in the present moment. I'd rather mindlessly watch Netflix or I'd rather take a walk and be lost in thought and not really notice my surroundings. You know, what is the point? Like, why be mindful? Um, I don't know. I'm not like a mindfulness spokesperson or salesperson. <laughs> but... Um, I can say that it doesn't have to be an either or. Mm. I think mindfulness isn't about, you know, taking a pill and becoming green when everyone around you is white or yellow and you can't change back. I think mindfulness is really much more about having a choice. And that choice comes from deciding where you want your mind to go. And sometimes just zoning out, letting your mind wander, daydreaming, fantasizing. It's a good place to be. Maybe when you're involved with something that you want to be present for, it can be hard to be present because the mind itself can sometimes have a different agenda and want to be somewhere else. And so mindfulness is the ability to notice where your mind is and make a choice on whether you want to let it just run or whether you want to bring it back to really tasting a really interesting soup or listening to someone who's telling you about a struggle they're having or enjoying just sun on your face as you're climbing a mountain and you finally get to the top and it doesn't have to be these like wonderful experiences it could be waiting in line at the bank and feeling yourself getting irritated and bringing your attention to what it feels like to stand in line feeling your feet or the soles of your feet and not letting that ruin your day because the mind can very automatically create a big story about how this sucks and it's just going to be a terrible day, bringing yourself back. And so mindfulness lets you do that, but it doesn't mean you can't do the other things. So it almost sounds like when you're being mindful, you're increasing control of the mind. Would you say that's true? There's an interesting way in which that's portrayed in Zen Buddhist practice, which is that one of the best ways of taming the mind, like what you're suggesting, control the mind, is to actually let it run free, but to bound it. So the image that they use is an ox, a wild, strong, powerful, muscular ox that is allowed to run free and do whatever it wants, but there's a fence around the property. And that fence is really the idea that you can let your mind go where it wants, but there's a way in which you can always bring it back to where you want it to be. Mm -hmm. So it's not about controlling and saying, you know, I shouldn't have this thought or um, I shouldn't have this feeling or why is this sensation in my body? It's more about noticing and feeling like there's a purposefulness in where you can bring your attention that allows you to understand your mind. And then there's choice between that. Okay, interesting. And I noticed you mentioned when you're being mindful, you might be able to notice a thought or notice a sensation, notice irritability, for example. Yeah. And 
I think what I've heard sort of as a myth that kind of permeates throughout society right now is that when you're being mindful, you're actually devoid of thought. Your mind is somehow blank. And I'm wondering, is that true? Is that a goal of mindfulness or does that happen over time or is that something we can't even aspire to? No, no, it is a feature of some types of meditation practice. Okay. The goal of some types of meditation practice. It's not a feature or a goal of mindfulness meditation practice. Hmm. There are practices that come from other meditation traditions where the idea is you empty the mind and you develop a concentration that is so powerful that there is an emptiness. Maybe there's just a focus on a single mantra, a single point in the mind, and everything else is cast aside. And some of those practices, when you hear about people who are able to lie on a bed of nails or do incredible feats with their bodies, walk over coals, you know, sometimes those mental states of just emptying the mind involve allowing people to do that because even sensations and stories about pain and those things aren't coming into the mind. But that's totally different than mindfulness. You're not trying to empty the mind. You're not trying to get rid of things that come into the mind. The mind is wandering and you're just watching the movement of the mind. It's a Mm. different type of practice. Now, I think that stereotype comes from a stereotype of meditation where people try to believe that their problems will be you know, solved if they can just empty their minds because so much thinking is like at the root of their problems. But that's like a cartoonish, like Hollywood idea of what meditation is. And people who really, and this has happened on retreats that I've taught or workshops, people that really try to empty their minds have got a tough time doing it because it's very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Well, from my understanding, just like how the salivary glands secrete saliva, the brain secretes thoughts. So the idea that we can somehow turn our thoughts off sounds just extraordinarily difficult to me. Turn your thoughts off. I mean, there are ways you can do it pharmacologically, you know, sedatives, even psychedelics and other pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical agents can dull the thinking process, slow it down. But the point of mindfulness meditative practice is to develop a different relationship to your thoughts. So you don't have to get rid of them. And actually, in in some of the classic Buddhist texts, the idea that the brain secretes thoughts, much like a salivary gland secretes saliva, is used as an illustration to say that, hey, there's nothing special about your thoughts. You wouldn't assign a personal significance to whether you're sweating in terms of what it means about you as a person, <laughs> right? You wouldn't say, I'm sweating a lot. It means I'm a good person. <laughs> I'm not sweating a lot. That means I'm a good person or I'm a bad person because it's just sweat. It's like impersonalist. It's like my body does. But we do assign tremendous personal significance to our thoughts rather than seeing them as our brains have all of these activation thresholds and associative networks that are going to fire when a stimulus is present. And so that's why we have all of these thoughts and we can watch these thoughts get produced. Instead, we say this thought that says, this is wrong with me, or I want more of that, or how come that person does this? I need to follow those thoughts and follow the story that they create and figure it out. 
So we do personalize and we do feel like it's a reflection of self. And a lot of the mindfulness practice is getting people to a place where they can develop this relationship to their thoughts. This is what my mind does. I can watch it. Um, I don't have to be commanded by it. And the other part of the practice is opening up where else can you then stand in the presence of these thoughts. Wow. Okay. I love that. And before we jump into mindfulness as a treatment for psychological disorders, particularly depression, I do want to clarify one more sort of misconception that I hear. You mentioned earlier standing in line at a bank, noticing irritation. That sounds very different to me than sitting down and taking 30 minutes to meditate. And so I was just wondering if you could speak to that idea of how mindfulness might be different than meditation it's not it is meditation okay Okay. meditation is where you practice the ability to be mindful the formal way so the 30 minutes on your cushion by meditating in this way where um, you're following the breath you're noticing sensations in the body or you're noticing what the mind is doing you're noticing mind wandering you're noticing sensations that allows you to be present with those phenomena of the mind. Mm -hmm. And irritation may come up as one of the things that you find when you sit on your cushion. Right. Irritation because maybe someone in the next room is speaking. Irritation because there's no quiet space and someone's banging on the door. All of a sudden, wow, here's irritation. So how do you have a relationship to irritation? What can you notice about it? Where do you go in the body to see how it shows up? And then you practice that a couple of billion times. And then when you're at the bank, it's like, oh, hey, this is irritation. And I've explored it and created space for it on my meditation question. Can I do the same thing when I'm standing right here in the bank right now? You've already seen that movie. And then you bring the skills more and more into your life. And those skills are strengthened because you've been practicing them several billion times. Dr. Zindel Siegel is co-creator of MindfulNoggin.com. Mindful Noggin's evidence-based digital courses will teach you how mindfulness can help you achieve greater emotional balance and resilience in everyday life. To learn more, go to www.MindfulNoggin.com. So I'd love to pivot a little bit, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Oh, sure. It's a, a treatment that... Mark Williams, John Teasdale, and I developed as a way of helping people that have recovered from depression, whether through antidepressants or psychotherapy, and are at risk for relapse. Because we know that once people are no longer depressed, a a large number of them relapse. And and if they've relapsed once, it adds about a 16% risk to subsequent episodes. So it's a real problem. Medically, this is managed by continuing people on antidepressant medication. And some psychotherapies do have prophylactic benefits built into them. There's good evidence for cognitive therapy if you've had it to teach you skills to, to, to lower your risk of relapse. But a lot of people don't access CBT. It's not as available and in some jurisdictions. It's quite expensive. So we developed mindfulness-based cognitive therapy because we felt that training in mindfulness directly allowed people to develop this capacity to watch thoughts and feelings and sensations in the mind and to develop a different relationship to them. 
so that they didn't necessarily you know, trigger depressive thinking styles, but could be viewed in a way that was less tied to triggering. And so that was really the rationale. We went and spent time with John Kabat-Zinn and we watched him teach some of his courses on mindfulness-based stress reduction. So John Kabat-Zinn was, is the creator of mindfulness-based stress reduction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he, at that time, he was someone who was using training and mindfulness meditation right at the forefront of this intervention. He had an eight-week intervention. A lot of what people did in that intervention was practice mindfulness meditation and then take it into the realm of stress reduction. And we were really interested in how can you fold mindfulness meditation into a clinical intervention? And then we optimized our intervention to address depression, anxiety, and features of what you might call transdiagnostic dimensions, like worry, rumination, preoccupation, catastrophization, which show up in depression and anxiety all the time. Mm -hmm. So problems that kind of transcend diagnosis, but maybe many people have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. We received a really interesting question on the Instagram and I thought I'd ask you. So the question was, mindfulness is a solo activity or it might be thought of as a solo activity because you're experiencing your own experience in the present moment on purpose. Mm. So how could mindfulness help people with depression better connect to other people? Do you see a link between the ability to be mindful and the ability to connect better with others? Yeah, I think there is an ability that is sharpened and supported by the practice of mindfulness because part of what mindfulness allows you to do is to become aware of barriers that you might be facing personal barriers in terms of your mind you know inhibiting or limiting what you think about yourself or what you think you can do and the invitation in mindfulness isn't to you know run up against those barriers and smash them down but to investigate them and to see if they can be um, worked with in a way that involves exploration and discovery and, and kindness. And so in the same way that people are encouraged to work on issues relating to the self, there may be a way of understanding what is it that stands in the way of you connecting with other people. Mm. You know, do you find that, that people irritate you or do you find that people disappoint you or do you find that people don't give you enough? Or do you find that people don't listen to you? Or do you, what are the things that the mind is already suggesting to you as barriers to social connection? Are you embarrassed about the sense of needing other people? Are you embarrassed or inhibited because of that? And then this becomes a focal thing that you can investigate. And then as you start to investigate that and hold it in a different way, so you're suggesting the mind's readout is not entirely uh, factual. There may be other ideas or solutions that come to mind that you might be willing to try out or play with. That's one thing. <clears throat> the other thing is that a lot of mindfulness in traditional communities is taught collectively. The community of people practicing together is very, very important. And there are some apps that are available, I think Insight Timer and others, that if you use it to time your meditation practice, you can see who else in the world is practicing at the same time as you are. And so there's a small virtual way of trying to develop that sense of community as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of apps like Insight Timer, I've really noticed over the last, let's say, five or so years, mindfulness really seems to be appearing everywhere now. When I go into bookstores, I see books on it. It's yeah. being mentioned on TV shows. Why do you think that is? I think it's taken off because of good and bad forces. I think initially there is something experientially quite real in people being able to engage in contemplative practices such as mindfulness. But remember, mindfulness came after yoga. And yoga was also something that was really embraced and and widely disseminated. So there is a way in which people, I think, are looking to connect more with themselves, understand themselves, understand the mind, and and focus on the body. And then I think it became overhyped because of just a massive promotion of ideas around mindfulness, which actually are not embedded in mindfulness. And the seduction of mindfulness being a way of achieving a state of bliss or like really chilling out or what people talk about when they talk about like, this is really Zen, meaning, you know, affectless, lifeless surroundings. And I think that that's the part of mindfulness that's being sold, which is a misrepresentation of what mindfulness is, because it's not about chilling out as much as it is about having a measure of chill, but then from that place of chill, actually investigating things that are uncomfortable. Right, right. The uncomfortable stuff doesn't sell all that well. Right. Leave it (laughs) off and you just sell the chill. Before we go, I'd love to know what you think might be the biggest barrier to trying to practice mindfulness and where you recommend folks should start if they do decide to take up a mindfulness practice. So that's a great question. I think there are two levels in which that can be answered. I think the one level is personal and the other one is when mindfulness is used in the service of caring for yourself. So if you're just wanting to start a practice of mindfulness, then I think it's important to recognize you don't need to do it on your own. You don't need to sit on a cushion with your eyes closed for 30 minutes and try to figure out what should be happening. (laughs) Get an app that is um, able to support you, download Mm. some mindfulness practices and try it for yourself with some guidance. Read some books in terms of what can be something that you expect. I think a great book, when a book that got me into practice in a big way was John Kabat-Zinn's book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. Mm -hmm. Excellent book. book. And some of the apps that are really good, I like 10% Happier. Okay. That because the guidance offered is by excellent mindfulness teacher, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein. Really, really terrific. And then in terms of understanding what might be your experience, you know, you can follow Sharon Salzberg, you know, on, on Instagram or on Facebook. Some of her books are really, really good. But if you just want to go simple, get John's book, download an app, try it. There's a lot on, on the web. And then the other thing in terms of mindfulness for care is that it's very hard to find therapists who practice some of the mindfulness specialized treatments for depression and anxiety. So even with mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, it's very hard to find an MBCT therapist if you're not living in a large city. And in Toronto, we're, we're pretty well resourced. In New York, where everyone is in therapy themselves, not so easy. I have a hard time referring people to therapists in New York City. So what I've done is actually created with Sona Dimijin, a collaborator. We've created mindfulnoggin.com, 
which is a website that allows people to access a digital version of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. The public can access the same treatments that were only available in randomized control trials up until about six months ago. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> well, you know, we, we found that just publishing papers in high-impact journals is not moving the needle in terms of making these re resources available to people. And so we felt if we could just provide something for the public to access this program, it would be a step in that direction. And so that's really where I feel the next challenge for the therapeutic uses of mindfulness really are increasing public health significance through dissemination and, and implementation. Absolutely. All right, Dr. Siegel, it's been an absolute pleasure having you once again on the podcast. It's been great. Thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Okay, take care. And that was today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was hosted by Bev Catherine and produced by Yuri Gladio. Podcasting isn't free. Consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. You'll get early access to episodes and other exclusive content. You can find us on patreon.com slash stop psychoanalyzing me. Until next time.